Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, fire crews are fighting a large scrub fire in the Waikari Valley near Waipara in North Canterbury. Crews were alerted to the fire shortly after 8 o'clock last night. A reporter, Anna Sargent, has just arrived in the area and joins us now. Morena, Anna, what can you see there? Kia ora. Yes, so I'm in the Waikari Valley. It's a fairly isolated area, just over an hour's drive from Christchurch. And I can see in front of me um, a large portion of one side of the valley is black and scorched. Uh, The valley has pretty long grass around it, but this area I'm looking at is black and scorched. And I can smell smoke in the air and see helicopters um, flying over with buckets. Okay, so the firefighting effort is ongoing. It's uh, good to hear those helicopters are up because they were waiting for first light for that, I think. Tell us more about the uh, terrain there. You've mentioned a valley. What what, uh, is the, um, yeah, what's it like? Yeah, well, Fire and Emergency have said it's quite a difficult area to access. Um, so it's a pretty, I suppose, steep steep valley. There's sort of gorse and scrub here. And as, as I mentioned, it's quite long and blowing quite hard in the wind at the moment. Um, the Canterbury is under an orange strong wind warning at the moment, which um, Fire Emergency, you know, that, think that wouldn't be helping helping the firefighting efforts. Um, but yeah, it is definitely sort of steep, steep, hilly terrain. Okay, yeah, we are speaking to Met Service a little later in the program about that uh, that wind warning and what else is in store. Uh, evacuations, what can you tell us about about that? Yeah, late last night, residents of Shell Rock Road and Glenmark Drive were evacuated, and an evacuation centre has been set up at the Waipara Community Hall. Okay, thank you for that, Anna. Well, Prime Minister Christopher Luxon is warning he will need to make unpopular decisions in order to turn around the country's fragile state. Mr Luxon delivered the blunt assessment during his first State of the Nation speech as Prime Minister. Just hours later, he was surrounded by protesters, unhappy with political decisions uh, he has already made. Our political reporter, Katie Scotcher, was there. A frosty welcome for Prime Minister Christopher Luxon at Auckland's Big Gay Out. Hey Luxon, Luxon, go home, trans people don't like you. About 50 festival goers expressing their unhappiness with the government's policy agenda and position on Palestine. Are you going to condemn the genocide? Well, we, again, again, what I just say is... It should got, be a straight yeah. yes, man. Well, no, 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 just no be, it really should. No, really be clear. Genocide, bad. No, no, I got it, I got it, it is bad. New Zealand last week called for an immediate human humanitarian ceasefire and urged Israel not to launch a ground offensive into the southern Gaza town of Rafah. Yet the chanting and booing forced the Prime Minister to abruptly end his visit. A few hours earlier, Christopher Luxon was receiving a much warmer reception from National Party supporters gathering to hear him deliver this assessment. The state of the nation is fragile. And the Prime Minister is making very clear who he thinks is to blame. The last government treated us like a country that had lost its mojo. And because of that, we did. Labour and the Greens are pointing the finger back at the coalition government. 
the opposition parties say its policies like removing and replacing gender and sexuality guidelines from the curriculum could create further division. The current government are doing everything that they can to make the country more fragile, to make New Zealand a more divided place um, and to make the vulnerable in our communities more isolated uh, and more discriminated against than they ever have been before. He has got no vision. He is simply appealing to the worst of us instead of the best of us. The Prime Minister has long pitched his ability to improve the country's prospects. To do this, he says New Zealand needs tough love, which he is promising to dish out. We were not elected to fiddle and tinker and tweak while the big problems go unsolved. My government will not shy away, therefore, from making those tough choices we all know are necessary to deliver the future that New Zealanders deserve. That won't be popular with everyone, but it is absolutely necessary. Whether it's on the foreign or domestic front, the Prime Minister is already feeling the political heat over some of those decisions. Now, a few minutes ago, I spoke with Finance Minister Nicola Willis and began by asking her if Mr Luxon's reference to a, quote, fragile nation is really about setting expectations ahead of Budget 2024. We've had two years of a prolonged cost of living crisis. Interest rates have gone very high. We're now looking ahead to rising unemployment and a low growth outlook. And all of that's happening while the books are in pretty bad shape. We've got big deficits. We've got a huge amount of debt. And so our government has a big job ahead of it to get New Zealand out of what is right now a very difficult and, as you said, fragile position. Well, fragile suggests we're at, we're at risk of sort of collapsing or something. But, I mean, we've got S&P, the Global Rating Agency, says the country's at AA-plus rating. That was a recent uh, assessment. Our debt levels, the net debt is about the OECD median. We're not in any position where we're about to collapse. What we are in a position of is having to make careful choices because we are at a juncture where we, if we continue in the way we have been over the past six years, then New Zealand will get into a very difficult position. And if you spoke to most Kiwis about how they're feeling in their own personal finances at the moment, they'd tell you it's been tough for some time and they really want to see the country performing better. So we see ourselves as having a big task of driving better value for the spending that we do, driving better results from public services, and giving New Zealanders a sense that in the future they'll be able to earn more and have more choices in their own household budgets. Are you, as a result of this idea that we're a fragile economy, going to impose any fiscal constraints on yourself over this term in terms of targets, debt targets, in terms of spending as a percentage of GDP? Will we see hard targets, which uh, the last government actually initially early on did do? Well, on March the 27th, we'll release our budget policy statement where we will uh, make clear what our short-term fiscal goals are and what our longer term fiscal goals are going to be. And I'd note that one of the changes the last government made was to change the way they measure New Zealand's debt uh, in a way that meant that automatically it looked about 20 points lower than it does. It's now heading to around 44% of our GDP. That's really high by New Zealand's historic standards. Uh, And we also have a situation with, while carrying high debt, uh, New Zealanders are also experiencing in their own homes high private debt. So, so, so you're we do sig- have a lot of work to do. You're signalling there's going to be a return to the old way of measuring debt. Well, I think that what's important is that we have indicators 
that are meaningful to New Zealanders and that we make progress on. Because the other thing that happened under Labour was that they kept on delaying the goals they set themselves. So the return to surplus uh, was delayed repeatedly. The amount of spending and proportion to the economy continued to increase. Uh, and so what we want to see is incremental progress over time. We're not going to be able to fix in one budget what's gone wrong over six. I appreciate that. But, but can, you, can to... you answer that? Is there going to be a change to the back to the old formula for debt? Is there going to be... Uh, clear uh, targets around surpluses? Are we going to see hard targets like the debt one being changed? On the 27th of March, I will release the budget policy statement, which will make those things clear. That is the Finance Minister Nicola Willis there. Yes, that's going to be interesting, 27th of March, with a, well, perhaps a little hint there that maybe there's a change in the debt uh, measurement for New Zealand could be on the cards. Well, let's get an update on these fires. As we've been reporting this morning, properties near Waipara in North Canterbury were evacuated overnight due to a large fire there. Uh, Fifteen crews alongside a builder, uh, bulldozer sorry, fought the fire, moving through difficult terrain. Helicopters with monsoon buckets are now in the air. The fire is putting more pressure on the region's already stretched resources, hard on the heels, of course, of the Port Hills blaze. Fire and Emergency Incident Controller Steve Kennedy joins us now. Kia ora, good morning, Steve. Good morning. I know uh, the process of assessing the scale of the Waipada fire is, is underway at the moment, but what can you tell us about that fire? Look, I haven't got a lot of information on that fire. I've just arrived back on site at the at the Port Hills. Uh, what I understand, they had a fast-moving fire um, last night, which uh, was reported just after 8pm. Uh, there were some homes that were evacuated on a couple of the roads up there. Exactly how many, I, I haven't got that information at the moment. Uh, but the Hiranui Civil Defence opened up the, the hall at uh, Waipara to, as an evacuation centre. And overnight, our, our crews have been working on that to establish the containment lines. And as you mentioned, tonight uh, they'll be doing an aerial survey of that to establish um, you know, the size of the fire and, and what more resourcing is required on that for the rest of the day. Sure. OK. What about the situation with the Port Hills fire? What's the latest there? Uh, the Port Hills, we're, um, we're just sending our crews back up for the day. Overnight, we flew our drone teams again to identify any hotspots in the area. So we've got about 30 hotspots that they identified last night. Some of that was reflown over area that uh, was flown the previous night just to confirm that uh, some of those hotspots are still there. And that's our priority this morning, uh, is to try and get on top of some more of those hotspots before we get that uh, weather change and the wind comes up later in the day. What are conditions like there at the moment in terms of that wind? Uh, it's quite calm down here in the valley where I'm sitting at the moment, at the at the bottom of the Port Hills. Uh, but uh, I'm unsure what it's like up at the top. But just looking at a bit of dust up there that's coming off the road, it's uh, we've got no no real wind here at the moment. It's reasonably calm. Okay, that is good news so far. Right, you mentioned dr- your drones being up in the air overnight looking for these hot spots, but there have been issues with other people, private citizens, putting drones up? We have had uh, one or two issues with drones, and we had one yesterday where we had to 
pull out our air attack um, because we can't have our helicopters flying while there's private drones in the airspace where they're operating. So again, we urge anybody with drones uh, during the day around our operations, and that will be our operations both at the Port Hills and in North Canterbury, to uh, just keep away from the area so that our operations aren't hindered for that. If we were speaking yesterday about how much time we lose and depending on where our heli base is, that may be 45 minutes, uh, but that's 45 minutes per chopper. So we lose numerous hours of firefighting time uh, with that depending on how many aircraft we have in the air at the time. Do you still have people out of their homes there? Uh, I understand there may be one family still out of their home up near the Summit Road, uh, but that, as far as I'm aware, that is the only one. How are your crews doing there, uh, particularly with this other fire in the region? Um, Are you needing to bring in crews from outside the area? Uh, we, some of our resources, and we have got crews that are coming in from outside the area. We've got crews here at the moment from uh, from the Nelson and uh, Marlborough area, and we've got a couple of crews coming over today from the west coast. Uh, hopefully by the end of today we're going to be uh, well on top of the hotspots that we've got up around the, the Port Hills. But again, that will depend on the severity of the winds that's predicted. Appreciate your time this morning. We will let you get uh, back to it. That's Fire and Emergency Incident Controller Steve Kennedy. Crews there uh, coping with two fires now, the one in Port Hills, dampening down that fire and just assessing what is going on with the scrub fire near Waipara in North Canterbury. The wars in Ukraine and Gaza, as well as the death of Alexei Navalny, were top of mind for politicians, diplomats and defence industry representatives as they concluded the three-day Munich Security Conference. The BBC security uh, correspondent Frank Gardner is in Munich and joins us now. Good morning, Frank. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us this morning. This, uh, let's start perhaps with the most critical issues around uh, Ukraine, its ability to get ammunition and arms from the US, which is being stymied by the US Congress and the fact they're losing ground in the war. Was that a key key element of this conference? Very much so, yes. I mean, on the day that the conference began, which was Friday, really the kind of uh, the overshadowing factor was the fear that a future Trump presidency, a second Trump White House, would pull support for Europe, European allies in NATO. But that was fairly quickly eclipsed, um, first of all, by the death of Alexei Navalny, once news of that broke, and then by the speech made by, the very impassioned speech made by President Zelensky. I mean, he swept past me with his entourage walking on foot with heavy security. He was about literally just six feet away from me, but the helicopter overhead, just serried ranks of German police all in black with uh, heavily armed um, the Germans were pretty nervous, I think, um, because he gave his speech just really straight after the, the uh, announcement of the death of Alexei Navalny, the leading Russian dissident. Um, and clearly, the war in Ukraine is not going well for Ukraine. I mean, the bit that is going well is its long-range strikes in the Black Sea, that it's able to keep the Russian Navy at bay. It's it's pretty much driven them out of the northwest of Black Sea, and it's able to strike at their ports and harbors and some of their ships. 
but what's going badly is the the land battle because it's a battle of artillery and Ukraine simply doesn't have enough ammunition to fend off the enormous amount of long-range artillery that the Russians are able to deploy and wave after wave of mobilized troops that they just sent suicidally, First World War style, um, against the Ukrainian line. So the Ukrainians have had to, they've had to give up uh, a town called Avdivka in the eastern Donbass. Now, you and I probably wouldn't have heard of this place a few months ago. The reason why it matters is not so much that it's a strategic location, but the fact that Ukraine sent it's spent so much blood and treasure on trying to hold on to it, and it's failed. And it's given Putin the victory there that he needed just ahead of his election. The death of Alexei Navalny, uh, which has caused, obviously sparked a lot of outrage uh, around the world. I mean, in a sort of tragic way, well, could that actually help with those Republicans who are filibustering and preventing this aid getting through to Ukraine, perhaps hone some minds here about what they're dealing with? I'm not sure that it will because they're pretty entrenched. Um, I was able to speak to, there's been quite a big US presence here led by Vice President Kamala Harris, quite a lot of congressmen and women, um, mostly Democrats, but uh, also a Republican, um, Senator J.D. Vance. And he was asked, um, is this just electioneering? Is this just, you know, um, would-be President Donald Trump just saying things for the sake of it? And he said, no, the reason that we are holding up this so-called supplementary security bill is because we don't think it's in the best interests of America. And the Navalny death, as some would consider murder, is certainly a reminder to those people who don't need any convincing that Putin is a threat to the, to the world order. Um, but I think there's some pretty kind of entrenched views up on Capitol Hill that are going to be hard to shift. Now, certainly the Americans, including President Biden, have said, we will get this bill passed. It is going to happen. But the question is when? Because every week that that aid doesn't get to the Ukrainians, more of them die, more of, more ground is given up, and they're on the back foot. You know, things are going much worse there than they were a year ago. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, when you compare with Gaza and the situation which the U.S. has continued support in terms of arms to Israel uh, is critical in their ability to keep keep on with their uh, offensive in Gaza. Yes, and that's come in for a lot of criticism here uh, from some delegates, not from everybody. Um, but I listened, uh, for example, to the the Palestinian Prime Minister, Mohammed Shtaya, uh, who was giving an interview right next to me, and he was uh, absolutely, he was very fluent and in listing all the things that, why why Israel is making a mistake with what it's doing. Um, and a number of world leaders who would consider themselves to be sympathetic to Israel have called on Israel not to attack the Rafah, um, the, the, the part of southern Gaza called Rafah, where roughly one and a half, half million Palestinians are crammed into it. It's where Israel told them to seek refuge. And now Benjamin Netanyahu wants to carry out an assault there, which the Americans have said, please don't, well, you mustn't do that unless you've got a firm plan for the safety of the civilians. But as the Palestinian prime minister pointed out, he said, Netanyahu is not listening to anybody. And his words were, he said, he's not listening to his big boss, President Biden. So, um, that has certainly focused minds here. Um, and 
certainly one EU figure uh, was pretty angry that um, that nothing really has been achieved. There's, there's no plan really to rescue uh, the plight of Palestinians in Gaza. The talks in Cairo between Qatar, Israel, Egypt, the US don't seem to have made much progress in reaching any kind of a sustainable ceasefire. Mm. Just finally, Frank, the sort of existential question that you, you sort of alluded to at the start there around Donald Trump, a, f- a future Trump presidency withdrawing from NATO uh, and the impact that would have on Europe. Now, now, how is that being dealt with? Is there a sense that Europe is going to st- have to step up, pay more for its defence? Is, it, is it preparing itself for that? Um, the reason element of that, it's given certainly a bit of a shock to a lot of people. I mean, the, the problem is, is that Russia has put its economy on a war footing. It is devoting somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of government budget of national expenditure to defense. And um, it's spending seven and a half percent of its GDP on defense. NATO can't even get all the countries to spend two percent on defense. And so it's so far behind. Now, countries that are closer to Russia, countries like the Baltic states, states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, they need no convincing. They are ramping up their production. They're expanding their armies. They are really digging in because they worry that when President Putin is finished with Ukraine, he's going to come for them. And that is something that was talked about quite a bit here. Um, Europe doesn't have the capacity industrially or the simply it, it just simply hasn't got the capability to match the United States when it comes to defence power. Frank Garner, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. As always, the BBC security correspondent. Well, researchers are looking at a new wind speed warning category for tropical cyclones because they're getting stronger with global heating. New Zealand's most damaging storms tend to start as tropical cyclones, so forecasters here are watching developments. Climate correspondent Eloise Gibson reports. Met Service switched to using a colour-coded system of storm warnings five years ago and has issued more red warnings than it ever expected. Head of Weather Communication, Lisa Murray, says the system was changed because people were getting warning fatigue. She says Met Service originally expected only a few red alerts a year. Yeah, so we originally thought it'd be zero to three, but actually we've had a lot more. In fact, between 2019 and now we have had uh, 14 red warning events. Lisa Murray says when a warning comes, it's crucial people know how severe the storm will be. Where the red warning was the most intense type of events we'll get. So this is our um, ex-tropical cyclones uh, where you're going to see a lot of rain, a lot of wind uh, and high seas, sea inundation, all that kind of effect. Otago University senior lecturer Daniel Kingston says the majority of the country's most damaging storms start their lives as tropical cyclones. That's why he and other New Zealand researchers are keeping a close eye on news that the cyclone category system might be due for a shake-up. Right now, the wind speed of a tropical cyclone is rated from 1 to 5. But NIWA climate scientist Sam Dean says as cyclones are getting stronger, the top rating, which covers anything above 252 kilometres an hour, is no longer enough to show the severity of the strongest storms. The top category, Category 5, is the strongest one, but it's also open-ended. This wasn't really a big deal previously because we never saw any cyclones that, you know, um, 
we're well beyond Category 5, but we have seen a few in recent years, and so this has been proposed. Daniel Kingston says scientists don't necessarily expect more frequent cyclones with climate change. But what we are expecting is for an increase in intensity of the most severe ones. And so communicating that becomes a problem when you've got this this open-ended top category. International researchers have published a study on what would happen if there was a Category 6, indicating wind speeds above 309 kilometres an hour. They found five storms would have qualified all since 2013. Sam Dean says as the oceans heat, cyclones gain more energy from the warm ocean, and hotter air carries more water vapour, which fuels them further. Something we've observed, not only are temperatures going up, but the water vapour in the atmosphere is going up. As the water vapour in the atmosphere goes up, that water vapour is an energy source. He says forecasting requires a lot more than knowing the wind speed. You know, if we think of um, Gabrielle, I think, reached a maximum of a Category 3 cyclone, which is sort of a moderate tropical cyclone, but yet that was an exceptionally damaging cyclone in terms of its rainfall amount. Although New Zealand and neighbouring countries use a different classification system, ours too is open-ended. Lisa Murray says the proposed new Category 6 is relevant here. This becomes a standard through the World Met Organisation. We will definitely be taking it on. She says this is part of an ongoing effort to update warning systems to cope with climate change and get people to listen when a dangerous storm is on its way. That was our climate correspondent, Eloise Gibson. Well, let's stay with wind and strong northwesterly winds are forecast for Canterbury today as firefighters work frantically to put out fires across the region. As we've been reporting this morning, there is a large fire now burning in Waikari Valley, that is North Canterbury, and that has forced some evacuations. For more on the weather, joined by Met Service meteorologist uh, Matapelo Makabuklane. Good morning to you. Kia ora, Karen. Thank you. How are you this morning? Very well. Uh, this is a bit of a worry, this northwesterly. How strong is it going to be? Yeah, as you say, some strong winds expected today from the northwest. We've currently got some orange warnings out for those strong winds. Those cover the Canterbury High Country. We could be seeing wind speeds in the region of about 120 kilometres per hour. Um, I will say that those top speeds are expected in the most exposed areas. For the Canterbury Plains and sort of Christchurch area where we have seen those fires recently, we could see wind speeds in the region of about 70 to maybe even 90 kilometres per hour in those exposed areas. Yeah, just looking at your, uh, your, your forecast map with the warnings, the wind warnings, it looks as though Christchurch itself might not get the worst of it, but certainly possibly Wiper could. Is there a worry that those North, North Canterbury might be in the firing line a little bit here for gales? Um, with the wind warnings that we have, we are looking at sort of those stronger wind speeds. But of course, if there are already impacts happening, it is definitely good to be aware of the kind of winds that we are expecting. With the kinds of winds that we're seeing today, definitely people in that area, it would be worth keeping a close eye on those wind speeds for today. And what timing are we talking here in terms of the worst of this and how long might it last? It is all tied to the movement of the front that is approaching, and so it's that front that will really be cranking up those winds. We're expecting uh, the strongest of those winds pretty much from now and into the morning and early afternoon. Uh, That orange warning for the Canterbury High Country goes until 3 p.m., so we could see sort of late morning into the early afternoon as the strongest time for those winds. And the lower South Island too, uh, potentially Fiordland heavy rain watch? 
Yes, that's right. So this front is going to be bringing some rain with it. And of course, those mountains in the Fiordland area do tend to exacerbate the amount of rain that we get there. So a watch for heavy rain for people out that side. That might be a concern, I guess, for those in the Blue Cliffs area, given the uh, trouble they have had with, uh, with some high river levels. Yes, it has been um, quite a wet last few weeks out that side in the Western South Island. So, yeah, hence that watch. Definitely, if people are in that area, do keep a close eye on that information. And in terms of this nor'wester, what sort of temperatures are we looking at? I mean, are we going to get to 30 in some places in the east? Um, for the eastern South Island, yes, we, we saw some hot temperatures yesterday. I think Dunedin went up to about 30 degrees. Today in the Canterbury Plains, we could see places like Timaru, Ashburton around 29, 28, 27 out in Christchurch. So definitely a hot one on the way. All right. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Matapelo Makabuklane there from the Met Service. So this is going to be a trying day by the looks of things for particularly fire service uh, the fire service in uh, the Canterbury region with those fires in North Canterbury, of course, still putting out the hot spots on the Port Hills, uh, but right across large chunks of the South Island's dry, hot and windy. Yeah, they are bringing across some crews from the West Coast. It would be good if they could bring across some of the, uh, the, the rain, rain as well, wouldn't it? Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Such are the perils of New Zealand weather and topography. Schools are opting to uh, for a government grant instead of asking for parents for donations. The ones that do that are actually worse off than most wealthiest schools, the ones who still ask for family ask families for money. Results from an RNZ survey show some schools are requesting thousands of dollars from parents and raising millions of dollars. The richest are getting more than a million dollars from parent donations, much more than those that signed up for a grant. RNZ surveyed hundreds of schools three years after the scheme started. Here is RNZ in-depth reporter Farah Hancock with more. In 2020, the Labour government aimed to eliminate donations for most schools. It promised $150 a student each year as long as the school stopped asking families for money. That's creating real unfairness. It means that kids whose parents can afford to pay are getting a better deal than those whose parents can't. And so our view is that that shouldn't come into it. Actually, we've got to fund schools fairly. That was Chris Hipkins explaining the need for the scheme. But when he launched it three years later, it was opt-in and not available to higher decile schools, which could continue to ask for donations. RNZ surveyed around 600 schools not in the scheme and got 200 responses. On average, they asked parents for more than $350 and got 280 almost double what the government scheme pays out. Ten schools asked for over $1,000, with the biggest request, 4300 coming from Hutt International Boys School. It was one of five which raised more than a million dollars from parents. Chris Abercrombie from the Post-Primary Teachers Association is in favour of the grant scheme, but he would like to see all schools fully funded by the government. We know schools in wealthier communities can generate a lot more local funding, and this really exacerbates the inequality that we see in our education system. But not all schools which are ineligible for the government scheme are receiving millions from parents. Cambridge East just misses out on the $150 grants and gets less than that from parents. Principal Hamish Fenimore says this makes it hard to fund programmes for children with learning difficulties. The expectation is that we're going to meet the needs of every learner. And in this current climate, it is extremely difficult to be able to do that without the resourcing that goes alongside being able to achieve that. De La Salle College in Auckland's Otara is eligible for the scheme, but has opted out, 
and asked parents to donate $120. In his written comments on the survey, Principal Miles Hoggarty says this. We did not join the government donation scheme as we're opposed to the creation of a handout mentality. Removing a parent's obligation to fund their son's education builds a culture of dependency on the state to provide more and more. Massey University's Tony Carusi warns of loopholes if the scheme was mandatory for everyone. One easy one would be using camps, which all schools are still allowed to ask donations for. Tutor camp, right? Math camp, literacy camp, right? Like we, we, can, we can begin to campify uh, the, the donations process to make it seem as though uh, schools aren't asking for donations, they're asking for camp money. Education Minister Erica Stanford says there are no plans to change the government donation scheme. Well, to see how your school ranks, you can check out Vera Hancock's story online at rnz.co.nz. And- You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 